0: Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. This week, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, is joined by Dr. Beth Allison Barr. Beth is Associate Professor of History and Associate Dean of the Graduate School at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, where she specializes in medieval history, women's history, and church history. She is the president of the Conference on Faith and History and is a member of Christians for Biblical Equality. Beth is the author of a new book titled The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Thanks for joining us today. Be sure to stick around to the end of the episode for an announcement from Northern Seminary.
1: Well, I am so excited, Beth, that you are joining us here on the Alabaster Jar for a conversation about your new book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And I love the uh, cover of your book. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, this woman who's uh, not really silhouette, a portrait, portrait occurs uh, nine times.
2: So this is just the brilliance of the marketing folk at Brazos. They wanted to tie in a little bit to my medieval side. And so it's actually taken from a, um, an image of Catherine of Siena. And then they they modernized her and then turned her sort of Andy Warhol style. But the thing that I really love about it is that, you know, in Andy Warhol, you often get the, diff- you get the same image, but it's in different colors. But by keeping her the same throughout it, it kind of shows part of my point, which is that biblical womanhood makes women all the same, and that that's actually not the plan that God has for us. So I really love how the cover turned out.
1: You know, it's very powerful, and that that's an amazing story. It kind of launch us into before we even open the book. The cover is kind of telling us what's uh, between the pages. Yes. this is a marvelous read. I encourage our listeners to uh, to take it up. And one of and I'd love for you to tell us the story of what prompted you to um, to write this book.
2: Yes, well, um, I wasn't. I never intended to write a book like this. I just never intended. I really am a very happy academic. I love teaching. I'm an administrator, too, and I like being in the background of things. Um, However, at the same time, I also have always lived in this evangelical world that has pushed against women using their gifts in the church. And I have many times been, I don't know if it's a victim is the right word, but I have my ability to work in the church in the way I feel God has called me has been diminished um, because of, you know, the evangelical world in which I live. And I've also seen other women's gifts be diminished and, Mostly, I was willing to put up with it. I mean, this is one of the things that I say. I was willing to put up with it because I strongly, um, you know, I identify very well with with many aspects of evangelicalism, and I also, you know, I also sort of was of the mindset that this doesn't hurt that much. You know, there's no perfect church, and so I'll I'll stay. But over time. That um, justification on my part became more difficult for me to justify because I began to become aware of how the diminishing of women in the church really does hurt people. And it really does hurt women. And this was something that I had already known from my own life, but it became more, you know, that this isn't just a one time occurrence. And in the year in 2016, everything just sort of hit the fan. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, with the political world that we were in, where I watched my um, evangelical friends elect a man who was clearly, I mean, whose attitudes towards women were just so shocking and and touted him as a Christian hero. I mean, that was just, that was really devastating. Um, and it was also the semester that my husband and I finally decided we could no longer sit back and be quiet while women were not being allowed to use their gifts in the church, and so we decided to speak out. there were a, there's a, as with anything in a church, there's all sorts of complicating issues around it. Um, but the triggering issue is we decided to push to get a woman to be able to teach Sunday school, and that resulted in my husband getting fired shortly thereafter. Um, my husband. Knew it was going to happen. He told me he would get fired if we pushed the issue. Um, I told him I be- I believed him, but I didn't really believe him. <laughs> I didn't really believe it would happen, and it was very it was very shocking to me that this issue had been made such a primary issue that people who believed women could lead were then t- um, were then told that their christian faith was suspect because of that so it really was the circumstances of fall 2016 where i just decided i couldn't i couldn't live with this anymore i couldn't live with not telling people what i knew um and so i began writing blog posts and these blog posts eventually caught the attention of an editor who said would you think about doing a book and here we are fortunate yep fortunately you said yes
1: you know, and one of the things um, that, that I found so compelling about your, uh, your book, the whole way through, you talk about the anguish that you had in coming to this decision. And then here's a line at the very beginning, uh, page six, the hardest truth of all was that I bore greater responsibility than most in our church because I had known the complementarian theology was wrong, and and I appreciated that thread throughout the book. That uh, you 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 eventually just came to the point where you thought I can't support this because of what's happening to the younger men and women that I teach, and and I I, I can't in good conscience continue to um, uh, to promote it. Um, but, but there was a lot of anguish in coming to that. This, this isn't a, um, you're not a crusader right uh, in, in this, uh, but more of a, just a being authentic. This was an, uh, authentic move. I, I did not realize that you, um, in, as you're telling the story about Sunday school, was it high school or was it adult?
2: So it was high school. This is the crazy thing. Okay. It's high school. Yeah. Um, and it Is was I, yeah go ahead it wasn't actually by the time we got fired it actually wasn't about me there's sort of two parts i had become the temporary teacher but i had been told i could only lead them through the discussion questions from the sermon the week before because i couldn't i couldn't write my own lessons or teach my own thing from the scripture. And so I had been told I had to do that. And I finally just told my husband, I said, I can't do this anymore. I said, this is not teaching. This is a farce. You know, essentially I said, you've got to get somebody else in there. And that was when he was like, okay, I have these two people who want to teach. One's a woman, one's a man. He said, why don't we try to get them to become the teachers? And this can help push this question. And so that's what, that's what it was. Um, but it was high school high school kids.
1: It's a hard time. So I sympathize very much with the story that you have in, in here. It's uh, lots of friends that suddenly now you're not uh, maybe on the same page or you've got to go to a different church. I mean, it's very complicated. And I know our listeners, some of them either have a similar story or they're uh, contemplating, they're kind of in the midst of it. And, and it has a high price to... Uh, you know to pay with that but um i uh what what's so great about your book i think is there's just so much material in there to help women process through and and such good history to say okay i'm not alone in this I and mean, I, I look back it's 2000 years of christian history of women doing doing the stuff that i feel myself called to do do you want to highlight for us two or three women that you uh, or or uh Categories of women that that you felt uh, just are especially important and maybe often forgotten,
2: yeah, so one of the things that I think you know as a historian, patriarchy has always been in the church, you know this is something that we can't we can 't really get away from, uh, but at the same time, women have always. Still, done what God has called them to do. And I just find that very encouraging. Uh, You know, they may not always carry the role as pastor or preacher or, um, you know, bishop, whatever, but they still do the work and they still do the calling. And so I I just always find that so inspiring. Um, One of category of women, if maybe I work from the present and go backwards, one category of women that I just think that we have so forgotten are the women of the late 19th and early 20th century in the evangelical world. I mean, we just simply, it's just, it's shocking to me how much women today in the church do not know that the 19th century and early 20th century landscape was filled with preaching women. And this is something, you know, that I even found when my husband and I started at our tiny church um, outside of Waco, which is one, it's a very old Waco. Church uh, 1879 and I begin to read through the history of it in the archives because that's what you do of course when you go to a church is you go and find the archives Absolutely. and you start reading yeah. um, and I ran across the you know that they were bringing women into the pulpit um, in the early part of the 20th century and it just it wasn't even something it wasn't it wasn't a controversy <laughs> it wasn't I mean the deacons just all said yes good soul-winning preacher let's bring her and, you know, no controversy at all. It's just, and it was just, we just don't know this. We just don't know that women were accepted as preachy, as preachers, even as, you know, in the 20th century itself. And so that's one thing that I really, I just think there's so much rich history out there for us to go and find um, what women, even not within our own lifetime, but within, um, you know, more recent history for us. Um, as a medieval historian of course I I lament how much modern women do not know um, you know as I call it our, our great cloud of witnesses from the medieval era I mean this is something I really do think that we have written off the medieval world because it's Catholic and there's a lot of anti-catholicism in modern Protestantism still um, and then we've also written it off because in the medieval world women couldn't be priests and so for some reason we've got it stuck in our head that because women couldn't be priests that they couldn't do anything else either and that they were not they were not visible or active and what we find is actually the opposite, um, and in fact, I'm thinking about Catherine French at the end of her really good book, "The Good Women of the Parish." One of the things that she notes is that women in the 15th century were much more visible and active in the church than in than after the Reformation. You know, this is something women become less visible and less active. Um, and so when we think about, you know, the medieval church, that women just flood the landscape. And of course, one of my favorite women is I talk about her in the book, um, is Marjorie Kemp. She is such a fun woman. She's somebody, I always tell my students, I never, I don't really want to sit next to her in a church service. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know what if I would have appreciated her as much as my friend then, as I do now as a historian looking back on her, um, but she was a woman who felt called by God, and she did all she could do. You know, she didn't take she she was married. She had fourteen kids, um, and that would have should have kept her from being a religious leader in the medieval world. But she wouldn't take no for it, uh, and so you know she ends up negotiating with her husband to get into a Sexless marriage, you know, you know that's essentially she pays off his debts, and he he relinquishes his right to sleep with her, and then she goes off on all of these pilgrimage journeys, um, praying for people, and really just you know almost sort of becoming a street preacher. And she's just really fantastic because one of my favorite stories about her is when um, she you know she's been a street preacher essentially, and some local men decide that she's a heretic and they actually start coming, um, you know, to arrest her. And there's this moment where she's standing in the street and she sees these people like coming and she just, you know, she just says, dear God, you brought me to this place for love of you. Be with me and help me. And miraculously, this other man like appears next to her and actually, you know, protects her and escorts her out of this dangerous situation. And then she, you know, she never sees him again. And so I think Marjorie Kemp thinks it's an angel that God sent, you know, to protect her. But I mean, she's just, her, her book is full of stories like these um, where, you know, and I just, I just love that. Um,
1: Well, and I, you have a, I'm I'm just uh, glancing through um, kind of the dialogue that you have in your book. And, uh, and she says, you know, I, I do not preach, sir, I do not go into any pulpit. I only use conversation and good words, and that I will do while I live. And I, I get the image of Peter, you know, saying to the Sanhedrin, I, I can only testify about what God has done. That's all I'm doing. I'm just sharing the gospel, you know, and... Yes, uh, I, I love that yeah,
2: comparison. Um I mean that that's exactly what she does. And I think it's interesting too, where she makes a distinguish you know, she distinguishes herself from being an ecclesiastical position. She says, you know, I, I'm not taking over the role of a man, but I'm still doing the work of God. And you can't stop me from doing that. And the archbishop essentially says, You're right. I can't stop you from doing that and um sends her on her way. So it's miraculous. Yes. Yeah. Um,
1: You know, you also, you briefly mentioned um, about the medieval period moving into the Reformation, and both you and I as Protestants, we love the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, but you kind of unpack that in a particular way that I just hadn't thought of before that wasn't necessarily good news for women. What's that about? Well,
2: you know, it's it's one of those... Ironies of history, I think, where I really do believe that Reformation theology should have set women free because it removes, you know, in the medieval world, the reason women couldn't be preachers and teachers um, was because of their bodies. We inherited this Aristotelian, this Greco-Roman ideal that women's bodies are flawed and that they're actually not, um, you know, they're they're broken men. And that in order to be preachers and teachers, um, to be preachers and priests in the medieval world, um, they had to be, they had to essentially become more like men. And so this is why women who reject their sexuality in the medieval world can have religious authority. So nuns, um, other sorts of women religious, even Marjorie Kemp, you know, they can gain religious authority by becoming more like men. But in the Reformation theology actually does away with this. It says that women and men, it really emphasizes the image of God and that women and men are both created in the image of God um, and that women and men can come to God on their own, um, et cetera. And so it really, it creates this, space where women suddenly can have equal authority, spiritual authority with men. I mean, priesthood of all believers, that women can have equal authority with men um, through this. But the problem is, is that patriarchy is is still there you know this this human inclination and so what happen, what happens as i i say in the book is patriarchy shape shifts and suddenly what we end up with is these new types of ways to keep women from being preachers and teachers and leaders and now it's not because their bodies are broken but it's because all women are called to be wives and wives are always under the authority of their husbands. And so women can never be leaders because their primary calling is to be a wife. And so that's where, you know, we see this sort of shift in patriarchy. Um, it's not its not really good or bad for women because patriarchy is in both places. It's just that it changes how it is enforced, I suppose.
1: And yeah, and for our listeners, do you want to just... Um, Give your uh, quick definition of patriarchy, yes. so we're sure we're you know talking about the everyone's on the same page.
2: Yeah, no, thank you for for making me define my terms. Um, so patriarchy is pretty simple. It is just a it is simply the um, the system that has been present in all cultures, all societies from really the beginning of civilization that values women's work as less than men's work. And that puts women legally under the authority of men, and so it's any sort. Of, and it shifts and changes. But you know, I always tell my students, um, you know, I often have students that are resistant to the idea of uh, systemic oppression, you know, sort of things. They don't, you know, they and they don't want to think it affects them. So I just say, hey, well, let's talk about how much women make in history, and we know this. That and in fact, that, you know, I talk about this in the book that women in the 14th century get paid 70 to 75 cents to the man's dollar, which is the same wage gap that exists today. And it's like, this is, this is uncanny. Um, And you can trace it back even further too. that women for doing the same sort of labor and doing the same sort of, um, you know, job, even having the same sort of training, Never earn the same amount of money as men. So this is an example of patriarchy, a very clear example of patriarchy um, that women are always under the authority and are um, not given the same economic, legal, you know, status as men.
1: Yes, yes, and the um, it manifests itself as you point out there, like with. Um, salaries in in particular ways and and then there's also distinctive ways in the first century how patriarchy would be expressed and what the first century church um had to deal with and what we have to deal with today uh there's different expressions of it but there's that foundational reality you mentioned about with the protestant um uh rise of protestantism um the emphasis on the priesthood of all believers, but also the insistence on women being wives, as ha- as that being their fulfillment. Um, and uh, you talk about as well in the book this notion of uh, sanctified uh, domesticity. Yeah. Am I pronouncing that yes. right? Can you talk a little bit? Because now we're kind of fast forwarding from the Reformation period. To more of our time, right?
2: Yeah, the early modern. So yes, I mean, if, you know, for those who haven't looked or seen my book, what I sort of do is I walk us through two thousand years of history, and every chapter is sort of a different era of time, and so um, the early modern period, which really you would put like the 17th to the 19th century, um, created this idea about women that stems, it stems, it's born in the post-Reformation world, which values wives as the primary calling for women. Um, But at the same time, it also stems from enlightenment ideas. And, you know, this is the thing that strikes me so much when I read modern literature about women's places in the home it strikes me how much it sounds like enlightenment teachings and so we can think about Rousseau who's one of the most you know um, well-known enlightenment teachers 17th century France and he you know he argues that women's brains are actually smaller than men's and are, Created to handle um, to handle education, to handle deep thoughts, to handle leadership the way that men's are, and so he essentially he argues that because women's bodies are designed to give birth, that women's brains are designed only for domesticity. Um, which if you flip that, we won't do that here, but if you flip that and, and make that same argument for men, it becomes very interesting. But nonetheless, I mean, that's the argument is that their brains are not capable because our bodies give birth. And so it says that women are literally created for domesticity. And this gets, um, begins to become codified in law. In the early modern world. And it also becomes codified in educational practices where women are shut out of educational spaces, um, not allowed, you know, to, and many of it's because they're thought that they can't, they can't learn the same way as men. Um, and then this, you know, by the time we get to the 19th century, there comes this idea, which historians call the cult of domesticity or in America, we call it the cult of true womanhood. Um, and so there, there are parallel ideas that essentially say that women are divinely created to be different from men to have different roles from men that are centered on the household, um, that they are not sexual creatures by nature. They only give in to sexuality so that they can bear children. Um, But it is also their responsibility, you know, to protect themselves, to protect their virtue from men. Um, And then that they are also more prone to piety, that women are more prone to religion than men, to a quiet religion Um, in the house. And so, I mean, these are primarily the components. And if you think about it with modern complementarianism, it's almost exactly what they, you know, what they tout about modern complementarianism. And I love it that we have these two historians in one of the books that I cite, you know, Women and Gender in the Western Past, um, who say, you know, who who say this was called complementarity. (laughs) The, I mean, this is the word, and it's it's so funny because I'm like, well, yeah, that's exactly what we've done today. Um, so the this cult of domesticity, and one of the interesting things about the cult of domesticity in the 19th century is that it also shamed women um, for their for their bodies and for their sexual. Like you know, their character was um, defined by their sexuality. Uh, so women who were not virgins or women who were considered to um, to show off too much of their body or whatever, we're seen as being morally suspect, and we we have sort of a purity culture that arises in the 19th century. That's in many ways very similar to the purity culture of the 20th century, and also just as dangerous. So,
1: yeah, yeah I, as I was reading your your text, I thought you know uh, it's in in the Victorian period most of these wealthy men had mistresses. Right and and prostitution was uh, was rampant at this time. And as I thought more, there there's also the women who are domestics um, who are working to feed their their families. The wife whose right. husband deserted, or they're a widow. Um, and it has struck me that. Any claim about what a woman should be, that is only accessible to those who are in the middle class or above, yes. is probably not biblical. And the fact that this this argument, this ideal that's put up, that requires a certain economic status, uh, it, I mean, to me, it just it can't be biblical if if all if all people in all places and all times can't do it. And uh, yeah. that yeah. That's so.
2: exactly right. It's also excludes um, people who aren't western white Europeans. So
1: Exactly. Right. And and uh the the shame quality uh that women have this Really maybe love, hate or mostly hate relationship with their body yeah. uh, here in the uh, in the West, which is not always the case. We lived in Kenya for a couple of years and I, I noticed how different um, women women in different contexts from different African countries didn't didn't have that same concept of shame, at least about physical appearance that I had that I had grown up with. Uh, you tell uh, a funny but sad story uh, about, uh, modesty battle that you decided to take on (laughs) when you were, I don't know, in your early twenties maybe, Uh, and you didn't know any better uh, at youth camp. Yeah. Tell us (laughs) us about that.
2: So my husband and I got married 10 days before I started grad school at Chapel Hill, PhD program at Chapel Hill. And he started seminary at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. So we've done this, you know, and we've been married, I think, what, 24 years um, now? So we've done, we've always done academia and ministry together. And so it's always been this really weird convergence um, in my life. And I still, you know, I still was uh, accepting you know, I still accepted male headship in my, really, you know, as I said, until much later in my life, I was mid thirties before I really walked away from it. Um, and I still lived within a church that supported it. But so in my twenties, I'm still accepting male headship, but at the same time, I'm also beginning to see these disconnects and these messages that are given to women. And so we were, we had taken our youth to this church camp and, um, and we'd never been there before and we never went again and it was and i'm not exactly sure if we misunderstood the dress code or you know i thought that they changed the dress code that was my mis- my understanding the whole time we were there was that they had they had introduced these new changes to it. But essentially they banned um, tank tops for girls. I mean, and this is it was hot. It was like at the high 90s, oh, Yeah, it's North Carolina. humid. Yeah. You know humid. and it's I humid. have all of these, you know, they're like we have eighth, ninth, tenth grade girls. I mean, they're still kids. And um, from the very first day, I got accosted by one of the leaders there who told me that I had to make the girls go change clothes because they were wearing tank tops. And I was, you know, I essentially told her, no way. <laughs> and I guess I didn't say it in a nice enough, gracious way, which I'm sure I didn't. I am anyway, but we almost got asked to leave that camp <laughs> because I was so insistent that those girls could wear tank tops and we finally And what, were, what we finally had to give in um and not have them not let them wear their tank tops um or else we would have been kicked out of the camp so it was it was crazy but it so
1: it's a it's funny how you tell it but it also has kind of that sad ending but it leads you to talk a little bit about our bodies, yeah, and how women today get maybe I could say mixed messages mm-hmm. about how we're to understand uh, our bodies.
2: Yeah, no, you know, and I I always loved Peggy Bendroth has this great statement in fundamentalism and gender, in which she says that you know it's almost like um, like boys have you know have have a stick of dynamite, and that women by seeing women. Exp- you know, it, it explodes that dynamite. And so it's like the whole goal is to keep, is women have to keep the dynamite from exploding. <laughs> and I mean, that's exactly what period, you know, it is. It, it's just crazy. Um, I still remember the, they brought in, I can't remember if I say this in the book or not, but they brought in the boyfriend of one of the girls' leaders to sit down with my girls and tell them that, they needed, you know, that it was that guys' minds worked differently than girls' minds. And that if they, if guys saw a bra strap or something, it would cause them to start thinking lustful thoughts and didn't, yeah, I mean, it was just, I was so enraged during that conversation. I still remember, you know, how it was. And I just sat the whole time, like with my head down and my hands together, because I knew if I opened my mouth, we would get kicked out. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah. And it, and Yes, today, I think that by just being able to talk about that, and then being able to talk to our daughters and our granddaughters, um, our nieces, as well as our nephews and, and yeah. the young men that are in these young women's lives, to kind of think about how uh, our bodies are, are beautiful. Yes. I think c- trying to bring back that category of beauty, our culture just thinks about sex, like that it... that. The beautiful equals the sexual, yes. but there is a beauty, an eternal beauty. At least I believe that as we're raised uh, in our glorified bodies, we'll be male and female in a perfect way, a perfection of beauty that doesn't um, involve procreation, but still has the male and female in, in a perfection, which is in a way what your medieval women were also pining for, yes. right? Is that perfection that being able to see Jesus face to face and him looking at at them and, and each of us um, with that perfect love oh, uh, and boy wouldn't that be great for the church to talk about that for both men and young men and young women who are um, trying to figure out well and for all of us really that it it's a,
2: no that's beautiful no respecter of age yeah <laughs> I wish those were our uh, conversations that we were having. <laughs>
1: Yes. Yeah. Instead of, you know, put a, put a big t-shirt on and just sit there and sweat because you're not, uh, you have to be uncomfortable. Right. Well, your book just, your book just came out. Now we're, we're talking with you a little less than two weeks since your book has come out. And I know that you've received some feedback from, positive feedback, I'm sure from a lot of people who've picked this up and read it straight through like me because they couldn't put it down. It was so good. Thank you. Um, Can you share? Yeah. Can you share uh, maybe some of the, have there been a few things that have surprised you, you know, that uh, you didn't think was necessarily that powerful, but someone said, oh, you know, this just blew my mind.
2: Yeah, I have, I am overwhelmed by the feedback that I've received from women and men who, um, in fact, somebody, you know, who just tell me that this that they have struggled so much with um, their role in the church, with their calling in the church, with their identity as women? Women telling me that they always felt like something was wrong with them, and that you know it is such a relief to hear that um, that they can be called by God um, and that they can be used by God, and and women who never felt called to be married and always felt like something was wrong with them because they didn't really want to get married. I've I've just received an outpouring. And, And younger women who have said how freeing it is to realize that their life is... Is free for her them to really make choices that there's not a one way that they have to be, and so that has been really powerful to me. You know, one of the places that I didn't um, that has gotten a whole lot of attention that I didn't think would get as much attention, or I just didn't really think about it. But in chapter seven, I actually you know spun off of a movie quote and I said I think the the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was um, convincing Christians that oppression is godly, and that seems to be a really popular statement that's gone <laughs> a lot of places and stuff. And you know, it's funny because it was, it's, it's ai I've that's been a, it's a statement that's been in my head for a long time because I've thought about it a lot. And I'm just like, it's so it's so funny that we think that telling people that they can't be used by God in certain ways and that they are created to always be under the authority of other people, we think that's godly. And it's just always struck me. I'm just like, you know, we have Jesus who always fights against, you know, he's always subverting the, the authority hierarchy. He's always, you know, su- you know, surprising us in these amazing, and even God in the Old Testament subverts the power hierarchy. I mean, think about how much women are raised up in the Old Testament. I mean, to me, maybe I'm just a glass half full person. <laughs> I, I might, I, I clearly am, but um it's just i I don't see how we can think that God is a God of hierarchy and oppression <laughs> when we really right. look at oh. the narrative of the Bible,
1: absolutely I mean there's the we we believe that God is a God of order, but order does not need to be expressed in patriarchy, yes, and that what what underpins patriarchy and sexism and racism is a value stratification where women or ethnic minorities are seen as less valuable, yes. or white male is normed. And you're either more emotional for a woman than a man, or less rational, what, whatever it may be, there's always this white male standard. And right. that, it, that's, uh, that's simply not scriptural. You're absolutely right. It, you don't find that uh, God, our Father, works strongly against that as he conforms all of us as co-heirs of Christ yes. uh, to this uh, beautiful picture of humanity that we will enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, that eschatological vision, maybe that's also why I'm hopeful, is yeah. at the end of the day, God will win. <laughs> you know. You know. And, and I And I want to be... Uh, part of the uh, part of the the healing uh, now uh, that will receive ultimate healing um, uh, when when we enter into uh, the new heavens and yeah. new earth. Yeah.
2: I, I think you and I have very similar viewpoints, Lynn. <laughs> I think the way we perceive all of this. Uh, no, I I do. You know, I, I always think about in Peter. I'm like. People get fixated on women being the weaker sex, but what Peter's saying is that we are co-heirs, which, I mean, which is an exactly. incredibly revolutionary sort of thing. And I'm like, uh, anyway, I just wonder if some of yes. this, we've just focused on the wrong thing.
1: Exactly. Yes. And we focused on the wrong thing, as you point out time and again in your book, because there other, there's, a, there's a, a driving force, patriarchy, that that shifts our attention. And uh, when we, you just shine a light on that. And I, I just encourage our listeners to take a look at this book. Uh, you'll, you'll learn a lot. Uh, I think you'll, you'll laugh. Maybe you'll cry as you relate to some of the stories because uh, that, you know, you don't shy away from kind of telling it like it is. Um, but overall, I think people will be incredibly encouraged. I so appreciate, Beth, that you took the time to write this book, Thank and then know. stop by the Alabaster Jar podcast and visit with us. Very much a, a appreciate that. And I hope that, I mean, we didn't even touch biblical texts that you mentioned in in here. So we'll have to have you back, right? You're gonna have, you are going to have
2: to have part two. Your name is the Alabaster Jar. Of course, I'm going to come back to this podcast. Good. You know, we haven't even talked. Excellent. Okay. <laughs>
1: I know, I know. We need to, we need to do that. So we'll save some, we'll save the biblical stuff, which since I'm a New Testament person, I would say we will save the best for next time.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's great. I would love to talk that with yeah. you.
1: Great, great. Thank you again so much, Beth. Appreciate uh, you coming on the Alabaster Jar. Beth's book is called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And I just encourage all of our listeners to go out and buy a copy and buy a second one for those special people in, in your lives. It'd be a great, great gift. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Alabaster Jar Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's conversation, we invite you to make plans to join us on Wednesday, June 2nd for a webinar hosted by Dr. Scott McKnight. Dr. Beth Allison Barr and Dr. Lynn Kohick will be joining us again to discuss women transforming the church and their communities, and they will be joined by Dr. Nicole Martin. Dr. Martin is an author, vice president of church engagement at the American Bible Society, and a member of the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Board of Preachers at Morehouse College. Go to the link in this episode's description for more information and to register for this webinar made possible by Northern Seminary. Please go ahead and share this episode with your friends and come back and join us again next week for another episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast.